You're listening to the Outsider Sisters podcast series. This podcast exists to amplify the voices and tell the experiences of women and non-binary persons of colour who grew up or migrated to the UK. Outsider Sisters gives you an uncomfortable snapshot into the everyday shared life experiences of many people of colour living on this small island. I started this podcast series as a queer woman of colour who was born in the UK, but my roots really, really exist in the Caribbean. So I have this kind of sense of what is my identity? Who am I? Where am I really from? You know, that question that you always get, where are you from? And I, I don't know. Sometimes I don't know who I am, where I belong, where I should be. But I do know that there are many other people out there who have these feelings and experiences and these shared experiences are integral and important to my well-being and my life. And I really want to share some of these stories with you. So over this series, you'll hear a multitude of different voices and different experiences. And I'm just really proud and privileged that I got to hear these stories and that I do get to share them with you. And I just really hope you enjoy this podcast series. In this episode, I speak to performance artist, poet, playwright, children and adult workshop facilitator, fitness instructor and well-being coach, Kat Francois. My name is Kat Francois. I am, I guess, my, my broad title is a performance artist. So I work in theatre and poetry. I'm also a director and advisor of, of, of work with young people, specifically um, meshing poetry and spoken word and movement. I am also a solo playwriter and artist. So I write and perform plays just with myself in them. I have done much hosting of shows over the years and also comedy over the years. And then I do a bit of broadcasting and um, the way that I, I make my money is through art, but also working with young people. So I do facilitation around dance and drama. And also I'm a personal trainer. You know, us artists, we have many, 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 many hats, don't we? Um, but yes, actually the personal training came about because I had to keep fit for the solo shows. Um, they're an hour long and there's a lot of movement in them. And then from there, it just spiraled. So yeah, it's all connected really. And what is your heritage or ethnic background? Mm-hmm. So I was born and bred in, in England, um, but my family are from Grenada in the Caribbean. So my mum was born there. My um, father was born here, there. And my gran came to England when she was about 26, 27, I believe. Yeah, we both had Grenadian heritage. My my family mm-hmm. are Grenadian as well. Okay. Yeah, okay. my my grandma. Um, yeah, my mum wasn't born there, but she was born in London. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Grenadian. I always say, yeah, my heritage is Grenadian. Caribbean, but Grenadian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got, we got the little spice yeah, island. Exactly, we have to, we have to. <laughs> <laughs> and what part of the Caribbean, what part of um, Grenada are they from? They're from a village called River Sally in the parish of St. Patrick's, oh, which is right down the bottom. That's where my family um, are from. Is, mm, St. Patrick's, yeah. St. Patrick's. Is, yeah, 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 St. Patrick's. Sotez, what's St. Patrick's? Yeah, Sotez is oh, like, yeah, yeah, okay. St. Patrick's. Yeah, 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 Sotez. I know Sotez because that's just literally the little town. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Next to St. Patrick. Right, we'll have to have a chat yeah. later to find out if we're related. They probably are. <laughs> All Grenadians so. are practically related. Yeah. It's so tiny. You're right. You're exactly right. Especially St. Patrick's Way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Our grandparents, mm-hmm. well, my grandma, my great-grandma probably knew your family. 
can you tell me about your um, experiences of growing up in the UK as a black woman? That's such a, that's a big question, isn't it? It's a big question. <laughs> it is. Um, hmm. Why is it a big question? I guess in, in, in light of everything that's been going on, the Black Lives Matter, it's a big question. Also, I think it's a big question because we've had time to think about things due to lockdown and COVID in a way that we've never had a way to think about them, the time to think about these things. My experience, like everybody, I think it's been very much of a mixed bag. I'm a dark-skinned woman, which means I was a dark-skinned child. Um, I So my bias or the way that I've moved around in life, definitely as a child, was impacted by that. Um, you know, from when's, I'm trying to think when's kind of like the first racist experience I had, maybe, you know, primary school, I can remember a girl calling me a black pig. Um, it's all right. I gave her one box. She never called me that again. Don't worry. And uh, I remember saying to her, the only pigs I know are pink and that's what color you are. Box. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, I didn't used to take crap from people when I was little, Amazing. you know, but I was a little bit fiery. Um, <laughs> And, but I can also remember the head teacher was a Polish guy. He was very racist. This was the eighties and they, this was just really, he shouldn't have been caning people at that age. But I remember he used to cane the black boys and never the white boys. And really that really wasn't even acceptable then. That's ridiculous. It was the eighties. And I remember when a few of us got in trouble for stealing in school, it was stupid. It was like kids, you know, 10 rubbers, pens, that kind of things. He sent the police round to my house, sirens blaring in a car. And, you know, for a black family, what do they say? Don't bring the, you know, one of the biggest rules, isn't it? Yeah. Don't bring the police to our house. So that was massive because then, you know, obviously the parents are embarrassed and sometimes they overreact. And I'll never forget that was one of the worst beatings I got, you know. So it was, that had a massive impact, that overreaction of things that we do. You're a kid and there's no leeway when you're a black child, sometimes from people outside the family and then inside the family as well, yeah. they've got us on a tight, a tight rope. So sometimes I just remember not feeling like I could breathe, not feeling like I could make any mistakes. You don't want to bring shame on the family. You don't want police or social services at the house. And then as you go older, I'm trying to remember 15 auditioning for dance school. I was obsessed with dance school and I didn't get into my main one because basically they said the um, curve in my back was too pronounced. We all know that a lot of, you know, black men and women have quite a pronounced curve in their back. Mm -hmm. And I remember being very devastated about that because it was something I could not do anything about. So they weren't looking at how good I was at what I had done. So that was the first kind of institutional piece of racism that really licked me. And then I can remember going back to the school and the um, careers teacher, she was racist, straight up racist. Like us black girls would be like, we want to do this. No, no, no. You'll just end up working in the supermarket. You can't be a lawyer. You can't. She used to say those things. Blatant. It's funny. I was talking to my mum the other day and she said, well, why didn't you tell us? And you know, sometimes as kids, you just don't tell adults what's oh, going you don't on. Tell them loads of stuff. There's loads so of stuff. much stuff you just don't say. It's almost like you have to remind children, keep talking, mm -hmm. keep saying what's going on. And she made an announcement, this woman, to my whole year to say that I didn't get into the school because I had a disability. They found that I had a disability. And then she told me to my face, I'm glad you couldn't get in because you're too outspoken and you need taken down a peg or two. Could you imagine saying that to a 15-year-old black child? And I know I'm not the only one. I know people have a plethora of things like oh, that. Yes. 
And the thing is, the whole BLM has brought them up. We've started to talk about them. We buried them. We forgot yeah. about them or we buried them. So there's... It's been very triggering. It has. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. We've had the time to really think. So those are kind of like the, the big ones. And then, um, you know, I can remember going to college and wanting to dance and drama and the drama teacher convinced me, no, do dance, do English and do sociology. You need some more academic stuff. And then realising afterwards, it's because he didn't want black people on the course. Because when we all went to audition for Shakespeare, he was like, no, there's no black people in Shakespeare. I can't have any black people in this. He was blatantly racist. And then, I, you know, the penny drops and you realise, oh my God, this man. But then again, maybe it was better that I wasn't in this class. Could, could you imagine oh, what I would have wow. gone through? So those were the kind of things. Uni as well, like a lot of people are like uni. Um, I done dance and sociology at university and I ended up dropping a lot of the dance modules because um, they were so racist. I used to just get marked down so heavily on my dance exam papers, you know, like your, your papers or your, your essays. And in sociology, I'd be getting like 70s and, you know, like Bs or As. And in it wasn't correlating. So I ended up dropping a lot of dance. So the thing is, it's real funny. We get so used to these things. They just become a part of our story. And with me, if someone says, I can't do something, I'm going to try harder. Actually, when you look back, you say, why do I have to go through that? What And what does that do? What, and you think, you know, my, my son, um, he's mixed race. Mm -hmm. He's 11 now. And I went through his phone a little while ago because I'd like to check his messages that he's sending to his friends. And one of his girlfriends was talking about how she was getting bullied in mm -hmm. her class by this boy. And he told her, yeah, oh, he called me a nigger. <laughs> and... I didn't know this. He didn't tell me. I've asked him before. Have you ever experienced any you know, racial abuse? He's like, no, no, no. He didn't tell mm. me. And that's the thing. Kids don't tell you things. And mm. I said, why didn't you tell me? You know, I'm such yeah. an outspoken feminist. Like you didn't, you know, talk about black culture with him all the time. And he didn't tell me. And it's a boy that I know. He lives pretty much across the street from mm. us. And I know his parents. I'm friends with his parents. And I just thought, wow, like he held that in. That's the thing I think with children. It's like you constantly have to check in with them. And I know, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s, you know, I'm the second oldest of seven. You know, my mum had a lot on her plate. And sometimes I think children don't want to bother their parents. You know, they we watch, like, we watch and we take in a lot, I think, as young people and children. You don't want to, you, sometimes you feel like you're burdening your parents. Like they've all, that they've already been through so much. What you're going through is not that much. Because we don't always realise the um oh gosh I don't know what's the word we don't realize the significance or the damage that these things cause when they happen because it's not just one thing isn't it they add up after a while and then you know through my poetry I have dealt with an extreme situation of um, police brutality um when I was 24 okay, no, I didn't know yeah 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 I um had a very extreme situation where I was just on the way home from my cousin's house. It was it was late, maybe late, late, maybe 12, but I was a big woman, you know, 24. We used to, um, we had a dance audition the next day, I think. So we were practicing our routines and we'd done this thing where we walked each other. We, there was like 20 minutes between our houses. So we used to walk 10 minutes into the journey and then turn back to make sure we were okay. Just so happened that night, there was some idiot white guys out who ended up punching me in the face for no reason. I just got, yeah, I just got physically attacked on the street. 
there was a passing police car and basically I stopped the police car for help, you know, obviously in a panic, young woman on the road by herself. Anyway, the police did not believe me. They didn't believe me. It was a, it was a crazy night. The police didn't believe me. I ended up getting carted off by the police. Um, in the process of them carting me off and flinging me into the police van, they almost succeeded in suffocating me. And then they didn't actually take me to the police station. They actually tried to get me sectioned. Oh, my God. But I was very lucky in a sense. There was an Asian doctor and a black nurse. And um, they could just basically see there was nothing wrong with me. I mean, I'll never forget the black nurse coming in. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation in your life where the person that you need comes right at that moment. And I so needed to see a brown face. I needed to see a face that looked like mine. She was just like, I get it. I understand. But right now you need to get it together. You need to get yourself together and you have to convince this psychiatrist that you're fine. I know you're fine and you're upset, but <clears throat> yeah. So she spoke to me like a mum, like, do you know what I mean? Like an older sister, like an auntie. And I got my shit together and I, I came out. The psychiatrist said, there's nothing wrong with her. I came out. And oh my God. that wasn't the end of the story because I did actually take them to civil court. And I, I did win a case against them for um, excessive use of force. So that's been, you know, so obviously all the George Floyd stuff and all mm-hmm. this, it's been really massive for me because I go on the marches every year and um, I've dealt with it through my poetry and my plays and I've written about it and but it's like anything, it's very triggering because it's ongoing. So it's almost like something I can never lay to rest because it's over 20, you know what I mean? It's like 22 years ago. But how can you lay something to rest that's sh- constantly shoved down your throat? That's it. That's it. And also, I mean, tw- 20 years ago can be a second to somebody. It doesn't, of course. time has no, co- I mean, time is a, a human construct. Of course. So. Yeah, people can say, mm-hmm. oh, it happened 20 years ago, but it can be fresh in your mind. It can be as fresh as the day as it happened. Especially when it comes to trauma. And we know from post-traumatic yeah. stress now, there's so many things that we understand now that we didn't understand before, that if you're suffering from post-traumatic stress or you're triggered by things, you are back in that moment. So it doesn't matter yep. whether it's 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. You know? And I've been on marches and I've done poetry on marches and I've done many things over the years to highlight especially as a black woman, because we don't get to hear, and we know a lot of black women go through very brutal circumstances with the police. So I've had from the extreme to the mundane. And funny enough, a few weeks ago, I got cursed at in a park by some guy. He wasn't even English. Started cursing me, telling me to go back to Africa and calling me a prostitute oh and all God. the rest. But the difference was, and I don't know whether it's the Black Life Matters thing, I wasn't going to call the police. Why? Do you know what I mean? Uh, like, why yeah. would you? But I did. I said, you know what? We've got to start changing our attitude. Let me just see. You know what? They came that day. They came that day and they were like, no, that's not acceptable. You got a picture. And my partner had got a picture of the guy. They took all the DLs. I gave a statement over the weekend. Um, his pictures got out. They're looking for him. Even if they don't get him, they got his description. So if he comes up again now, yeah, I don't know whether that is a BLM thing, but I'm glad something happened. It makes you feel less, you know, like your hands are tired, like this stuff just happens all the time and there's no comeback. 
Dura puts me. Blue black skin darkened by the sun. Scrawny toothpicks, legs deceptively strong. Hair ranging from woolly afros to arrow straight tresses frame their faces. Fierce heat beats onto brown skin, only familiar with English temperatures. So the hottest part of the day is spent hiding underneath a large tree, trying to move as little as possible. A lone dingo has taken a liking to the camp. Scrawny and pale, it sulks around the edges. Vulture scavenging for discarded scraps. My morning is interrupted by the padding of its feet as it follows closely behind. Heartbeats fast, but two large sticks and array of loud, strange noises soon scares it away. Follow the women as they pick plants, pulling and tugging, talking and laughing until limp fibres lay in their hands. Later, they will be soaked in boiling water to create dye for mats and baskets. They slap the water to ward off the crocodiles, beckon me to join in. But fear, caused by watching way too many wildlife documentaries, will not allow me to follow. Nights are spent crouched around a blazing campfire, ignoring the heat. Coats are pulled up, covering ears and fingers, warding off aggressive mosquitoes, which ruthlessly attack. Flames keep them away. Songs sung and stories weed float away into the engulfing darkness. A tiny tent is hung for two weeks. The silence at night times is oppressive. No city lights, no noise pollution, just thoughts. Too scared to make my way to the toilet, which is a wooden hut 50 yards away. Spend hours crossing my legs, praying for sunrise. On my last night, they named me Carnapa, the woman who travels. And we're used to it, which is even more worrying. You just get used to it. It just becomes a part of your everyday expected life. You expect to be racially abused. You know, I expect it of every day. Course. When it doesn't happen, I'm like, all oh, right, okay, cool. That, that didn't happen. But when it does happen, I'm kind of like, oh, all right, okay, here we go again. And uh, especially living in a northern city. <laughs> oh, God, I can't. Is, <laughs> you know, and I've traveled all over due to, you know, being a dancer when I was younger and then also performance you know performance artist poet I have been all over the UK and beyond and as much as London might get on my nerves I'm like oh god at least there's a few numbers yeah, down there's people that look I mean? like you <laughs> but you know when it comes to institutionalized racism we're just as bad off <laughs> as anyone in any part of the country so I think my experiences have been from the minute to the absolutely extreme I don't know many black women who have been through that level of police brutality that I have but I am also at the point now where I'm like everything gets pulled up like I did a CBT it's like a motorbike thing so you can just drive I I have a little Vespa um been riding for years and I went and done it but the guy who done the course was an idiot and he was just chatting away chatting away and uh, must have been into trivia because he kept on saying Do you know the capital of that this 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 when this happened anyway later on he says do you know what is the biggest problem facing African-Americans? You know, when your heart sinks, you're just like, please, not today. I've just come to get my ting. Like, I beg of you, please. And he said, oh, single parents, the lack of, the lack of fathers. I called bullshit on him. I was pissed. And another guy started, I was like, bullshit. I never come here for that. Anyway, I let them have their day. The next day I complained. I got my money back. <laughs> he got pulled up. I was like, not today, Satan. Don't let me throw holy water and garlic in your face. I'm sick of it. 
They're giving us mental health problems. Like, I'm not doing it. That's so, yeah. Ridiculous. You know what's stupid as well? Like, I know so many single mothers, right? Every single one of them is white. Every single one, because I'm up here, you know, northern. So I'm like, so are you trying to tell me that black people are more likely to mm-hmm. be single mothers awesome. when actually like every single Manny. instance of woman that I know who is a single mother. Yeah. I mean, I, I know black single mothers as well, but my, my friendship circles, they're all women. And was man a white is woman. man, man exactly. is man. Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. And they are, they have white children. They don't have no mm-hmm. black children. They have white children. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to tell me that that's not a problem. It's all down to the fact that you're black and that is why you are a single mother. No. Mm-hmm. And why is he discussing it with you? What? I'm never come. I'm never come exactly. to hear that, you know. And you're not African American. What the it's, hell? What, uh, <laughs> so now you're a black woman. You're an American black woman. What? Exactly. But My anyway, God. he got pulled up because when we was when we was on the road later, there was a woman in front of us on a um, a racer bike bent over, and he said to the boy in front who was driving, "You should have grabbed her ass as you went past." I know. I was like, "What am I? Am I in like a professionals or a Sweeney Todd kind of something here?" Like. I was just like, I just cannot believe this man, you know? Because you can hear them, can't you, through the mics yeah, as well? Yeah, we're all mic'd up. I can't talk to him, but I can hear him. He's got to give us direction. So I was discussing this with the woman that I was interviewing before. Mm-hmm. And yesterday I said, it's almost as if black women are so not women. We're invisible. Uh, like, you know, would you, would you have said that? Was there a white woman there? Mm, I don't know. And but I think is it is it because we're so invisible? We don't even, we're, we're the, someone else said we're the bottom of the food chain. We're so at the bottom that people don't even ex- yes. remember that we exist. And I would have to agree with you. Sometimes even the point to walking around when you're on the tube or the train, or sometimes the way people walk through you, mm-hmm. I have to say to them, did you not see me? Or you know what I've started to do? Because my partner is six foot two. He stands in front of me. He leads the way because he's noticed it. He has noticed it. So a lot of times when we're in busy situations, he stands in front of me. Just, it, I get so stressed out thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, no, it is, it is. It's that invisibility. It is. Can you tell me more a bit about like your work and sort of describe your poetry, I guess, from an influence of how, you know, your experiences, you know, I know you write a lot about um, being black or being Grenadian or yeah, your mean, history. I just write my life, you know, and it just happens to concentrate on those. But I've been never been a, a performer that's been frightened to shy away from those things and so mm-hmm. some people have called me intimidating why should it just be intimidating because I'm just talking my truth fix up if you're intimidated by it do you know what I mean ain't you privileged that you can be intimidated by a black woman getting on stage talking about her life experience shut up people get on my nerves do you know what I mean because I've heard that a lot of time as a performer because I am I'm a very passionate performer I take my performing very seriously um I'm a very emotive performer but the reason I am it's because the minute I stepped on the stage and was able to use my voice, it was a revelation. For that smaller part of time, people were willing to listen to me in a way that never, never were willing to listen before. And as much as I loved to dance, I still felt dance was almost like an entertainment thing. Yeah. Like, You're almost on like show, mm-hmm. aren't you, as a black woman? You're like You're entertaining them. But with my words, I can lash you and then you'll clap me afterwards and tell me how wonderful I am. So I think I learned through, you know, writing and performance and movement that I could really have an impact on audiences and tell my stories in ways that, not I'm not saying that they're palatable, but to just bring people into my world. Yeah. Yeah, to just bring people into my world. And that's what being a performance artist, a performance poet has allowed me to do. You know, my first play I dealt with called Seven Times Me, I dealt with um, domestic violence. 
Well, it was really about my life growing up in a city life, in a city kid, but I did bring in domestic violence and also the police incident was dealt with that. When I won the World Slam Championships, the piece I won it on was called Untouchables and that was about the police experience. I've never shied away, never shied away from doing those subjects. Um, I've My second one-woman play that was about Caribbean soldiers in the First World War, it was all about my relative in Grenada. Oh, yes, I've read. Yeah, you um, you're, is that the book you've written as yes, well? Yes, yes, Raising Lazarus. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just really, again, just wanted to bring our stories to the forefront. I mean, how many World War I stories have we heard from a white perspective? Like millions, <sighs> I'm sick of them. I can't them. them. Do you know what All I mean? Of them. Exactly. So, um, you know, done a lot of work about me being a woman, about, uh, yeah, I'm just not frightened to tackle any any subject at all. So I will talk about anything and I will talk about everything. And there's a lot of things that I still haven't talked about that I'm preparing to talk about in time to come, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, it does. And then a lot of the work I'll do with young people, I do quite a lot of work with young women and I try to encourage them to talk about their truth and to tell their stories. Um, in fact, the group I'm working with now, I've been, we usually work together on a Monday evening. They usually come to mind a group of about seven, eight young people from about 22 up, but we've been doing online work. So I've been encouraging them to tell their stories, but tell their stories in a way that don't leave them vulnerable. So we've been working on weaving stories into fiction. Because you do leave yourself open to vulnerability when you do put yourself out there, or it could just be like emotionally, you're just not ready. So I don't want to encourage young people to lay their life on the line like that, unless they're really ready for what comes with that, you know? Yeah, and then, I do. you know, a lot of my comedy as well. Um, I will use the comedy to challenge a lot of things about women, a lot of things about black women, um, you know, things from feminist perspectives or perspectives about the black body and the black female body and what that means to everybody else and what it means to us, you know, um, I'm trying to think what other subjects, yeah, definitely domestic violence also more so as, a child raised in domestic violence. So I can't say I've got a lot of work to do with being a woman because that's not my experience, but I am a child who was raised in that environment. And that's not something that I'm frightened to tackle head on. I actually brought a piece out during um, the lockdown called I Am The Child because I just thought of everybody locked at home. I thought like, oh my God, like that was me when I was a kid locked at home with, I used to call him the beast. Well, that's his name. That's what I call him. Locked at home with the beast, like, how did that feel? And that's why I put that piece out because I just wanted to, yeah, just reach out to kids who were like, or just anyone who'd ever experienced Stuck. that. Yeah. And the amount of comments I got back um, or inboxes about people, you know, that's how they were raised. And I don't know, there's so many things we sometimes think as a black community, we're so open, but there's so many things that are so taboo that we don't, oh, yeah. that we don't talk about, that we're not ready to tackle as a community. Definitely. Abuse is definitely one of those. Mm. I work for a, a woman's woman of colour charity mm. and it's been going for like 25 years and it helps women through domestic violence and does holistic therapy as well. Mm. And you don't have to join the th- join the centre to mm. uh, if you've been through domestic abuse, you can mm. get help in whatever way. Um, but I made an audio piece in lockdown about domestic violence because mm. um, it's really important for me to get that out. Um, but yeah, it's been the the Angelou Centre who I work for mm. there they've been really hard hit in terms of just 
the helping being able to, he- to treat women help women has been a lot harder yes, sir. and the ch- the young children as well that they help imagine. i mean a lot of the women that have been that go there they're, they're coming out of the domestic violence mm. but it's all the damage that's done of afterwards course, because the thing is um yes it's 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 almost like the damage is done you know it's a long road it's a it's a long long road it is a very long road but i've always felt lucky that for me i've always had my art like i've always been a reader i've always been a writer i've always you know when i was younger it's a physical embodiment and i didn't realize how important that was and how helpful that was you know the dance the movement how active i am all of that has been an absolute saving grace because i've been able to physically expel a lot of the trauma that i've been through and then obviously I found words, but for me, art and self-expression has been my saving grace. I don't dread to think <laughs> what I would have had if I didn't have those. Because I'm not a drinker. I'm not a smoker. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm, I've yeah. never gone down those roads. But I think maybe because I've always had something else, I've always found a way to express myself. Um, Which is definitely a saving grace. No, yes, it is. It is. And, and also a sense of humour. I think, um, so, you know, depending when people meet me, they can think I'm very intense. I am intense, but I'm a Gemini. So there's two sides to my personality and I'm funny as hell as well. <laughs> I've got, I've got a, I have an amazing sense of humor because um, laughter has helped me through a lot of things, you know. Laughter and a, um, a good healthy dose of boundary setting. Hell yeah, and that uh, calling people up on their bullshit, mm-hmm. and uh, which is <laughs> that gets easier as you get older. I think. Oh, uh, it does. It does. You're like, okay, <laughs> get back, you beast. Let me take out the garlic and the holy water and the crucifix. Exactly. You know, um, I've always been so mouthy, and mm. at school it was always back chat. No, I wasn't back chatting. I was telling you yourself. that exactly. I used to get told that I was too laid back. I used to get like all these negative mm. things about myself, which are good, good qualities. Mm. I've had tutors like not believe in me at all. And you know, it's because your skin color, you know it. Mm. You absolutely know. What else is it? What else can it be? When someone instantly takes a dislike to you, you haven't done anything you have to say, yep. especially if it's a professional, because you're a professional to be paid to be neutral. Yes. You don't have to like me, but you should really treat me the same as everybody else. Exactly. You may have your racial prejudices, but you need to not bring that, bring that to, to the table. your job. Exactly. Bring that to your table, bring it to the job because you, this is your profession and mm. this is what you chose to do. You're going to encounter people that don't look like you Definitely. and aren't like you. You know, if you, if you are in any way, any kind of ist, mm-hmm. you need to put that aside, but you can't, can you really? No, people can't. You can't. And you shouldn't be working in that field. If you can't, exactly. So I just think full stop, you shouldn't be working. If you've got any of these kind of like come out, ifs, come out, come you out. should come out, do somewhere where you don't have to encounter those uh, people and help them. If you're a professional, like if you're teaching someone how to ride a motorbike <laughs> and, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? Talking about grabbing men, women's bums. And, like, that's what I'm saying. I'm never paid to come to hear that foolishness. So I'm glad, exactly. I'm glad I got my money back. At first I was like, oh, should I complain? You know, they got my address. And I thought, no, cat, this is why these people get away with these things. Yep. You have to complain. That's my new motto, you know. Sing like a motherfucking canary. That's my new motto for everything. <laughs> A poem. Give her a big hand, please. She's come out here. Thank you. I married the lucky ones. When I was 23 years old, I was stopped by the police. I was attacked by a drunk white man on the street. I saw a police car and thought, wow, I'm really lucky. I stopped the police car. Next minute, they jumped out, reckoned them I was someone who I wasn't. I got my up, dashed into the back of a police van. Um, 
down, face down into the ground, couldn't believe, breathe. They didn't take me to the police station, they took me to the um, local mental hospital and tried to get me sectioned. Luckily the um, psychiatrist didn't section me. 2005 I took them to the civil courts and I won. But, um, I just want to say thanks to all the families. This is dear to my heart and this piece is called Does My Anger Scare You? Does my anger scare you? Does the darkness of my skin make you uncomfortable because of the safety of the whiteness that you sit in? Does the world comfort or protect, embrace or reject? Are you seen as an asset or a threat? Do the police stop you or you or you just for the hell of it? Do they ask you where you're going or ask you to empty your pockets? Do they treat you with respect or do they treat you with disdain? Do they handle you with dignity or do they revel in your absolute uncomfortability? Would you call them if you were in trouble or not bother because they're just not worth the trouble? Does my anger scare you? Does my truth annoy and irritate you? That there are blacks dying with knees in their backs and handcuffs round their wrists. Windpipes restricted and breasts cut off. Lips turning blue. Eyes bulging with fear and pain. Does it make you shift in your seat? The thought of thrashing feet. Of fingers gnarled and desperate trying so frantically to get free. Or does it make you want to say she's so aggressive? Her demeanor's so harsh. If I had to face that, I could respect how the police behave because if I had to deal with that, if the coroner always says accidental asphyxiation, but if only a little common sense was shown, if only a little compassion was shown, if only someone said stop, and I could constantly read off the names of those who failed to make it. Joy Gardner killed July 1993, and in front of her six-year-old son, they wrapped her head and mouth in 13 feet of tape and placed her in a body belt complete with straps and chains. And where's the family of Sani Lewis? A student killed September 2010, taken to a mental hospital, had an altercation, the police accordingly the Grim Reaper's faithful and there's so many more, so many more, so many more. Yes, I'm meant to make you feel uncomfortable, I'm meant to make you squirm, I'm meant to make your stomach burn, I'm meant to make your conscience turn, I'm meant to make you cry, I'm meant to make you ask why, because there are so many people who should be here that are missing. Mothers without husbands and children without fathers and sisters without brothers and women without lovers. How many more? How many, many more? 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 So yes, I am meant to make you feel uncomfortable. I'm meant to make you squirm. I'm meant to make you cry. I'm meant to make you hurt. I'm meant to make you ask why. I'm meant to take you to task. I'm meant to make you feel ashamed. I'm meant to make your conscience burn. I'm meant to make your stomach churn. How many more? How many, many more? 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 Guys, my heart just goes out to you. I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm a survivor. I'm here. It can happen to anyone. Even though I was a girl, it happened to me. And it's something that I find very hard to talk about, but the Rig sisters, you know, I met them and they just inspired me. And God bless everyone who didn't make it. My mum could be here today talking about me who died in police custody and she's not. Um, you know, girls, I'm just here for you. I know I've got a voice and 
I've never felt confident enough or strong enough to talk about this stuff. I'm here and I'm ready. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think we can all, like, we can't all necessarily jump into each other's skin, but I think we can all understand a level of, um, a level of privilege that comes with our position. Do you know what I mean? I was saying the same thing to my partner this morning, you know, men and black men need to understand there's a level of privilege that comes with being a man, a level of privilege that women don't have. So we all have the same experience about being black and what that means living in a world that we are. But if you're a man or if you're a black woman, their experience is going to be different. They've got a level of privilege that we will never have, but you will hear them always say, you know, black women do better than black men. We've got to start calling them out on that. We've got to start pulling up the statistics. We've got to start really challenging them on that just because we might be seen to have better jobs or we might be getting more of an education. Like the statistics, they don't play out in many, many arenas of being a black woman when it comes to sexual violence and, do you know what I mean, convictions when it comes to domestic violence and the protection that we're offered, they don't play out. We don't have an advantage there, you know? But I think as well as as women, we need to, like, you know, women have... I think women, some women, a lot of women have more understanding of, as a black woman's experience in terms of they are a woman mm-hmm. and they understand discrimination, like, pretty well. They've been through a lot mm-hmm. of it, especially, like, strong feminists. You know, they will... I found after doing a lot of the stuff that I'm doing with like sort of black rights and stuff, a lot of women seem to they can relate it to themselves because they've they've been on the receiving end of being othered yeah. because of their gender um, to a point. Uh-huh. To a point. Have you have you ever carried any self hate due to um, your skin color? No, luckily I haven't. Um, That's good. I, you know, my mum was very adamant that she filled us with love for ourselves. And it doesn't mean I didn't get comments. I'm a dark skinned child. I had a very short Afro when I was younger. I've got thick lips and a nose. And do you know what I mean? Like, and you know, what it's like, even in our own communities with the colorism, the closer you are to white, the more compliments and the more beautiful you are considered. So my older sister, she's got very much straight nose, thin lips, a lot, a lot of hair, you know, wasn't as curly. So people always used to compliment her. My younger brother, the one after me anyway, is very light skinned, hazily eyes. So he used to get a lot of compliments. And my mum, she said to me that I said to her once, why does no one ever think I'm beautiful? Nobody ever says. And from then on, she stopped people commenting. If you can't comment on all my children, don't comment. And I can remember wearing a lot of extensions when I was in my teens. And my mum saying, you know, I don't have a problem with you wearing extensions. I just have a problem with the fact that you wear them all the time. Take them out. Let your hair breathe. If you can't be happy with yourself, then you can't be happy. And those were the kind of things she just, That's strong. She, mum drummed that into me. She drummed it, she drummed it, she drummed it, she drummed it. So even if I might necessarily have felt it as a teenager, they like, teenagers act like they're not listening, but I tell you what, those messages, they go around. So I'm a natural girl. I've never had extensions. I've got locks, not extensions. Wow. I've never had weave or um, yeah, no, relaxed yeah. my hair. Oh, right. And that's not yeah, a criticism. Yeah. I'm not criticizing that because I know when I had extensions, I felt nice. I know that <laughs> them extensions gave me confidence and they made me feel good. Yeah. But actually it did get to the point where I had to say, okay, you've got to feel beautiful and confident within yourself. So, so I'm so jealous. You've never relaxed your no, hair. No, I'm so jealous. My hair. <laughs> my God. That so, was, that's, but that was mum. Mum would have been really, she wasn't into that. And she, she was actually upset with two of my sisters when they did. We're all back to natural now, all four of us. But when two yeah. of them relaxed their hair at different time, mum was pissed. She was not impressed. <laughs> 
Well, good, good. That's good mothering right there. That's a that's an emotionally intelligent mother right there. I think she just tried to counteract a lot of the BS that she saw happening outside. Because my mom said she always thought I was a beautiful child, and she was just concerned that these negative messages mm-hmm. were going to have an impact on on me. You know, and we do feed feed off it. I see the girls now, and you know, they're talking about colorism, and you know, boys only liking light skinned girls, and this and that, and. It can really have a massive impact on your self-esteem if you're not... Oh, it can. Huge. (laughs) What are your thoughts on the patriarchy and how this affects black women? In terms of? In terms of how, you know, we view ourselves or how we sort of move and negotiate through society. But we we move and negotiate through the eye of men, don't we? Yes. And, And that is the problem. We are not moving through society in terms of our own beliefs and through our own gaze, we are moving through society through the gaze of a man and that changes all the time. So at the moment, what is it? Light-skinned girls with massive tits, tiny waist and a massive ass. That's what the young girls are, are, are being told, you know, is what is desirable. Um, you know, in a way, I've never been able to play up to that desirability because I couldn't fit into it. I don't know what I would have to do. I'd have to bleach my whole self, get breast implants, Maybe the batty could work. I still probably need a, a bit more batty. So I've, I, it's almost like I gave up from young, even trying to fit into that. I never wore makeup or anything like that. But I know that's quite unusual. But, I, I you know, as I said, I have an unusual mother in that sense who really saw what was going on. Mm-hmm. But we, there, it's always going to be problematic if we base the value of what we look like through somebody else's gaze. And the patriarchal gaze, which changes all the time. Remember Kate Moss' time? It was skinny, skinny, skinny. Marilyn Monroe time, tiny waist, little tits, hips. And it moves, doesn't it? Now it's like big lips, big bum. Look as young as you can for a long time. It's tiring. Really looking at black bodies and black female bodies and what they mean. And I think sometimes as black children, we never feel like our bodies belong to us. Mm -hmm. Because we grow up in households where um, physical discipline and where a lot of the time the physical discipline does cross the line you know because we are beaten in anger or we're beaten because our parents are ashamed or you know it doesn't mean we don't love them but we're adult now we can sit down and talk about that you knew when you beat me that was not discipline that went yeah yeah so our bodies don't belong to us there if you grow up in domestic violence um you see that your mother's body doesn't belong to her then you, you know my incident with the police. I've had so many things happen where I feel like my body has not belonged to me, where other people have been able to come in and violate my body and touch my body or beat down my body in a way that was wrong and was not appropriate. And I think that's maybe an experience that a lot of black women, and I will say this, a lot of dark skinned black women, because I'm not precious. I've never been treated preciously, even as a kid. No, you're extremely right. You, I mean, I, my mum, she didn't beat me, but she smacked me. Mm. I remember her smacking me around the face once mm. before. The anger, I don't know what I do. I was being cheeky, but yeah, that's mm. one of my different memories. Like a full on slap. Yeah. That wasn't a beating. That was, well, it wasn't a, was it a wasn't like a in, smack on the bum. That was a put, put me in my place. Yeah. I'm angry. And years of oppression from her family mm. and abuse and stuff came out in that slap. And I just remember it so vividly. Mm. Um, that was abusive. 
But I also have to remember that my mum went through a lot and it's colonialism. And it it's- is colonialism. And I think it's important to understand their experience. Sorry to interrupt, but I just want to get this no, out. No. It's important no, it's to understand their experience, but we mustn't allow that to diminish the impact it had on us because that's the struggle that I've had or the, the reframing I've had to make that I understand where my mother came from. I understand all the colonialism. I understand the pressure that they were under, but that doesn't take away from the impact that that behavior had on me. And these conversations are always difficult to have. Look, Lauren, Lauren Hill's daughter came out the other day, didn't she? Calling out her mother. Oh, did she? Yes. Have a look. Sailor, Sailor, S-E-L-A-H. So her oldest daughter. Oh, Sailor. So she talks about that and talks about her mum being so angry and the beatings were like slave beatings. And, you know, Lauren does come back and she says that, you know, but she does dip into the colonial thing. But I think also what women fail to take or they, they don't want to admit is a lot of it is to do with patriarchy. A lot of it is to do with being left with children having to look after children by yourself, taking on the emotional, Mm. physical, spiritual, financial burden of children, being left with children that may look like the man who's left you, that bitterness. So I think I get that about the colonialism, but to be honest, I think it's one tiny part of it. I think it's the day-to-day frustration of motherhood, of womanhood. Mm. Because sometimes I look at my partner, I'm like, you are lucky I even like men. Because if I did not like men, you look are, nah, like honestly, sometimes I'm like, us straight women, we must be nuts. It's like sleeping with the enemy. Do you know what I mean? It's like we are sleeping with the enemy. It's so true. But we are. Yeah. We're having relationships with the oppressors. As someone who has dated both, I am fully in agreement. Oh the only thing is I'm not attracted to women. Like, but I'm telling it's you, like, I know, because I'm t- I look at him and I'm like, sometimes, like, especially as you know, you get older, you get deeper into things and you start to break things down. I'm like, oh my gosh, us women, like if we just turn around and said, men, we don't need you. We just don't need you, you know, but jokes aside, it is a bit of that, isn't it? Like I do look at women and black women's frustration. And I think a lot of it is down to feeling like let down in relationships, the pressure of having to raise children by themselves of being young themselves and trying the best that they can and sometimes not always doing great and then getting all the blame for it because the kids blame them and the man swanned off somewhere. I can't believe we're 50% of the population, maybe a little bit more, yet majority of the world is run by men. The majority of the violence against women, children and, you know, boys and girls and other men is committed by men. Um, And we have been locked out of so many systems. We've been locked out of so many decisions about our health, our mental health. Just, I I just, I'm like, how did we get here? 2020, how did we get here where racism is still an issue, where sexism and patriarchy is still an issue? Why in 2020 are we being still dealing with this bullshit? Patriarchy. Oppressors, they have, and they have the physical control as well. You know, they are physically oh, oppressive. They're mm. bigger than us. You know, you can't, as much as I know I'm a strong woman, physically, I can't overpower, I can't, I can barely overpower my son mm. who's 11, which scares the shit out of me, really. You know, he's, he's, he gets really angry when he has dairy, so he can't have mm. it anymore. But when he was, when he gets into one of his rage modes, I have to shut the door. I'm actually throwing things. Mm. I physically can't overpower him. And he's a little kid. Mm. And that scares me so much. But that's the point. Like sometimes I'm like, if God is really true, I need to have a word with him. <laughs> like I need to have a word because there was always going to be an issue. 
if you have two groups of people and one group is a lot stronger, the majority of them anyway, you know, we're not going to say yeah. all, but we're going to say the majority of men are stronger yeah. than women. That's why it always makes me laugh when you hear kind of like rape cases and stuff. And they want to look at the size of her. The woman was a size 18 and he was, t- well, excuse me, it's about muscle mass. And it's about strength. Fat does not equal muscle. And women may have no. more fat on their body, but it doesn't mean we have more physical no, strength. Not. And that's funny because that's one thing I don't think that comes up a lot. You know, when we talk about sexual violence, that physical difference in men and women, fear alone will make you freeze. But physically, a lot of women are not going to fight back because why are you going to fight back? You're not going to be able to take on a grown man. Caution, he's, not. He's, caution he's already not. been aggressive. He's already been violent in what he's doing. You're just not going to fight a man, a man back. So, um, so, yeah, it's it's problematic. And I think black women, we are only just really, a lot of us, I think, really are starting to understand how we've had the wool pull o- over our eyes for years when it comes to misogyny and yes. our own men. Because we've yep. been so much on the let's fight for BLM, let's fight for the black family and We've got to work together. And I think this is how we've had the wolves over our eyes because the brothers have said to us, we've got to fight for the whole family. We've got to fight for the black community. We've got to fight for this. But in that, we have become lost. Exactly. And it's become a black man fight. Yes. Which is, yeah, really, I was talking about this again, I think yesterday um, with my partner and just expressing again, like how how again black women have become invisible it's the mm-hmm. black man struggle mm-hmm. where's the black woman struggle mm-hmm. you know it, it's and where are these these are these black men who are talking about black women dark-skinned black women like we're pieces of shit mm-hmm. so if they're already internally racist towards black mm-hmm. women then how are we ever going to get there as women yeah and that's why we do need to work together we need brothers to really understand you know my when i say when i say brothers i say brothers as a whole but um mm-hmm. my younger brother you know we'll have some very good conversations he's very supportive of a lot of the things i do and supporting me in my work about highlighting women and highlighting black women and that's why we really have to have honest conversations i mean there was two things recently that happened one our Facebook girl went online and exposed a well-known hip-hop artist regarding domestic violence. She's a black woman. And there was about four of them. And three of them, he battered to the point of miscarriage and broken bones. Oh, God. And um, she called out a lot of people, our community, about how we hide monsters. Um, and that um, if someone's famous or has got a bit of clout, we don't want to challenge them. And then there was another girl who'd done a YouTube video and she talked about sexual violence from someone again who was in the community, who was a youth worker. Her incident happened many, many years ago. But, and it was funny to watch people scrambling because it's almost like, because it's been silent for so long, people don't know what to do about black women's pain. It's that whole thing about not wanting to call them out because they're oppressed already. That's why R. Kelly has got away with his shit. That's why Bill Cosby got away with his shit. That's why people in our communities get away with their shit. But you know what? Black women are not up for grabs. We are not indispensable. You want to abuse us and then you want to criticise us when we can't raise the children and we can't do the jobs we meant to do because we're so traumatised. That's Those days are over. I hope everyone starts singing like a canary and, you know, through my work, this is what I'm trying to encourage people to do. I really, I really am encouraging people to do that. Um, really just pushing for the silence to end. That's it. 
can you i've got i've got a question mm-hmm. that i want to ask you and you don't have to answer mm-hmm. it um but can you describe the feeling of being a black woman a target <laughs> i think it's 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 a target it's being a target for everybody else's anger um for instance, when the guy in the park started to abuse me, he couldn't even speak English properly. And all he could say was prostitute. And it was like, there is something about the black skin and the black female that can bring out the nastiest, most debased, disgusting behavior in people. So you do feel like you're walking around, you're a target. Thank you for listening to the first episode of the Outsider Sisters podcast featuring Kat Francois. Much thanks to Kat for letting us into just a small part of her world. For more information about Kat and this series, please refer to the podcast show notes. Until the next time, thank you for listening to Outsider Sisters, hosted by Chantelle Herbert. Sometimes you have to listen to black rage, even if it hurts even if you don't want to, even if it makes you want to scream and shout and say it wasn't me, even if it fills you with illicit shame, even if it makes you feel tied up and awkward, sometimes you just have to sit down, shut up and listen. Listen to the pain, listen to the anguish, listen to the grief. Jump off the pulpit you have become accustomed to preaching to us on. Step off the soapbox and pause. White noises loud overbearing, condescending and arrogant, constantly running in the background, a rambling commentary which never ends. It is so easy for you to turn your back on the blackness, create a sound barrier where the black voice cannot penetrate. You on one side and blackness on the other. You eat our food, dance to our music, appropriate our culture. And when you have had your fill, you discard us like unwanted litter. If only we could do the same. But we cannot put our blackness to one side like a shedding snake and climb out fresh, white and new. We cannot rub off, remove, walk away from our black features when they become too difficult to deal with. We cannot switch off the black channel. Better skill, we cannot turn the black channel off. We cannot wake up one day fed up, exhausted and refuse to deal with our blackness. You know what? Today I want peace and safety and sanctity. I want to be treated like a human being. So I am not going to be black. When we wake up in the morning and lay our heads down at night, we are black. Every time we look in the mirror, we are black. Every time we step out of the house, we are black. Whenever we apply for college, university or a bank loan, we are black. Every time we go for an interview, we are black. Every time we have an encounter with the police, we are definitely black. Every time we are forced to deal with Karens and Beckys and Johns and Stevens, we are black. There is no relief from this targeted skin. No sick days, no weekends off, no evenings off, no holidays, no days to carry over until next year as we garner more strength so sometimes you just have to listen shut the hell up and listen take it swallow it own it man up woman up them up and accept it the only way to learn a little of the black experience black anger black pain black hopes black desires black past and black futures is to shut up and listen and listen to some black rage button up your thin lips and listen to some black rage put down your prejudice and racist thinking misplaced liberalism for a minute and listen 
to some black rage. Sit in the uncomfortable and listen to some black rage. Even if you have a black friend, black partner, black child, black lover, black colleague, even if you've bought yourself a pair of thick black lips, bottom or thighs, you still need to listen. Listen to the brutal stories of black death. Sean Rigg, Ricky Bishop, Christopher Alder, Joy Gardner, Smiley Concha, Sarah Reed, Cynthia Jarrett, Sherry Gross, Leon Patterson, Kevin Clark, Sheku Bayo, Lasani, Lewis, Roshan, Charles and much, much more. Listen to their families call for justice. Listen for justice that has yet to come. Listen for justice that may never come because as long as the world accepts or ignores racism there will always be black rage to deal with it's your choice whether you hear it or whether you feel it black rage is ugly black rage is spit at the corner of our mouths black rage is fire black rage is angry ugly crying black rage is hate black rage is the lifeless body black rage is a modern day strange fruit an arm around the neck a bullet in the back a knee in the neck. Black rage is pain. Black rage is despair. Black rage is loss of hope. Black rage is a constant injustice. This is a grief so profound it is unrecoverable. It is the lack of light at the end of the tunnel. Black rage cannot be packaged or sanitised. If you really listen, it will sicken you, shame you, scare you, call your actions and your privilege into account. It will choke you. It will make you feel as if you cannot breathe.